Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Partygate proof, the investigation into government gatherings delivered to Downing Street. Russian risks the United Nations to discuss the Ukraine threat. And Rogan's regret, the podcaster apologizes as Spotify updates rules for misleading content. Hang off. It's Monday. Let's make a move. I will welcome once again to First Move. We're following two major stories this hour. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in possession of the long-awaited report into alleged COVID lockdown parties held in government offices. The next question, of course, is when the Partygate report will be released to the public. We await that. Also, as I've mentioned, the United Nations begin urgent deliberations over Ukraine in the next hour. The Security Council demanding answers over Russia's ongoing military buildup near the border. Ukraine crisis, just one of the uncertainties, of course, too, impacting investor sentiment, leading to some cautious global markets, as you can see. But green arrows for tech, a bit of a bounce after all that pressure for all the recent whipsaw volatility. Actually, the Dow and the S&P finished last week with modest gains. Take a look at that. A pretty good outcome, I think, given all the challenges and the choppiness faced. Earnings season also progressing well. But while most companies are exceeding expectations, the size of their performance or the outperformance relative to expectations less robust than we've seen in previous quarters. Fears, I think, about economic slowdown growth too, even as global central banks begin pulling support. Bank of America cutting its Q1 U.S. growth outlook from 4 to 1% due to Omicron pressures. It believes the U.S. economy could even contract in the first quarter. Imagine what that means for the Federal Reserve. And over in China, too, official numbers over the weekend show manufacturing activity barely holding in expansion mode. Slowing growth, but nothing slow about the news flow today. Let's get to the drivers to discuss all of these things. The lockdown party report delivered. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has received initial findings of an investigation into a series of parties at Downing Street during the pandemic. Salma Abdelaziz is live in London with all the latest for us. Salma, good morning. Big question is what's in the report and when do we get to see it? Well, right now, the only person who's looking at it is Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his staff. And yes, while the Sue Gray report was supposed to be an independent inquiry, Gray's boss is Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So that highly anticipated report, that report that for weeks now has been looking into allegations of multiple parties just behind me here under the Prime Minister's own roof. It will be up to the Prime Minister himself what to do with it. There's a couple of things to watch out first. First, the Prime Minister is going to go to Parliament in a couple of hours time to present his statement, his view on this report. You can be sure that he's going to try to have a stiff upper lip there. And the second thing we need to watch for is, as you said, Julia, what's in this report? Because if you can believe it, there's a second investigation into all the partying that's been happening behind me here. That one is led by the police and the police say there might potentially have been criminal offences committed because COVID rules could have been broken during lockdown. So the police have asked the Gray report to minimise any references to the most flagrant potential violations, to the possibly the most brazen parts. So what that means is we might not get all those toothy details we really want, Julia. But it's going to give us that overview, that understanding from Gray as to what the drinking culture, the leadership culture was behind me over the course of the pandemic. And it's going to deal yet another blow, certainly, regardless of what's in it, regardless of how thin this report is, it will deal another blow to a prime minister who's just hanging on to his seat, Julia. 
Yeah, then there's speculation over the weekend that if there is certain parts of this that are redacted due to the criminal investigation and the suggestion from the Met Police that they didn't want specifics in this report, or at least pointers to what the specific events were that they're investigating, that the government might be accused of whitewashing or delaying in order to allow Boris more time to sort of focus on other things. What's the risk here, actually, that they get accused of some kind of Whitehall whitewash, as I've seen it talked about over the weekend in the press? Well, Julia, I think before the reports even come out, there's been so much controversy over how much of it is going to be released. The Prime Minister has already been accused, despite the fact the report isn't even out yet, of trying to to suppress parts of this report, of not making sure it's all out in the public. I hardly think he would get away with it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It's not just about public pressure anymore here, Julia. It's about his own Conservative Party. And that's what we saw happen over the course of the last few days. We saw members of his party joining with the opposition in that chorus, that voice of calling for the entire report, whatever may be in it, to be released. So I highly doubt under all that pressure the Prime Minister can hold on to it. Yes, there will be a thinner version, again, because the police have asked that all those references to the most flagrant potential violations, all those references need to be minimal, need to be removed essentially from this report. So yes, a thinner report, but still a report that's going to paint you a picture of essentially an administration that was partying it up during lockdown, Julia. Yeah, and we're expecting Boris to speak, I believe, at uh, 10.30 a.m. Eastern time today. So in the next hour, we shall be watching for that. And, of course, to see if we get the release in the meantime. Sam Abdelaziz, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. We shall see. Okay, onwards. Beijing's Olympic bubble. The Winter Games now just four days away. Our Selena Wang is packed and ready for the experience. My team and I are traveling to Beijing for the Winter Olympic Games, held under some of the strictest COVID countermeasures in the world. Our journey starts weeks before. I'm here in Tokyo. It's 14 days before the Games, but I've already got to download this Olympic Health app, start tracking my health in here every day, and upload my vaccine certificate. I'm getting some deja vu using this app since we had to use a similar one for the Tokyo Games. But this time I'm using a burner phone because of cybersecurity concerns in China. For the next two weeks, I'm limiting physical interactions with others as much as possible. 96 hours before departure, here I go in for my first test. Back home, I upload my information to get this green QR code. Here we go, we're taking off. Just landed in Beijing, it's totally surreal. I haven't been back here since I moved about a year and a half ago. First thing I saw walking off the airplane is a sea of hazmat suits. Feels a bit more like going into a medical facility than the Olympic buzz you'd expect getting off the airplane. That was extremely painful. I just had a nose and a throat PCR test. I was tearing up a bit. I clear customs, immigration, and get my Olympic badge without seeing a single face. I'm officially in what organizers are calling the closed loop. Multiple bubbles connected by dedicated transport. The goal? To keep Olympic participants separate from the rest of China. Finally on my way to the hotel on this special bus that's just for transporting Olympic participants. Arrived at the hotel, they've got this giant wall all around the hotel so you can't just walk in and out easily. The local staff here are also part of this bubble. They'll have to quarantine for 21 days before leaving the bubble and returning to their homes in China. 
Beijing isn't taking any chances. Entire communities in China have gone into lockdown over even just one COVID case. I've been waiting six hours, just got the call. My results came back negative. I am so relieved, but it's not over yet. I'll be tested daily and will be mostly confined to this room and Olympic venues during my entire stay here. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Hmm. Disunited Nations, the Kremlin accusing Washington of stoking, quote, hysteria this morning. While the White House is preparing a list of oligarchs, it will sanction if Russia moves on Ukraine. This comes as the United Nations Security Council meets to discuss the crisis. Sam Kiley is in Kiev for his Sam. The Russians are already calling this, and I'm quoting them, farcical theatrics. And of course, as a permanent member, they have veto power over anything the majority decides. So, so what's the use? What's the benefit of holding this meeting now? I think the principal benefit, Julia, is to keep people talking rather than even if they're um, exchanging uh, rhetoric, even abusive rhetoric, it's better than firing weapons at each other. And at the same time, the, the Russians are managing to exploit uh, continuing uh, frictions, if not uh, fractures, uh, in the uh, Western alliance alongside Ukraine. Ukraine continuing to argue that an attack on uh, this country is not imminent. The United Kingdom, the latest of the Anglo-Saxon nations, to say that they believed it was imminent, that, in, that it was likely that President Putin would order uh, some kind of military incursion into this country. There have also been local reports, Julia, of false flag operations, allegations being made by the Ukrainians. We've got absolutely no independent support for this idea, but that, uh, uh, that the foreign agents may be trying to foment political demonstrations here, very elaborate plot allegedly being uh, unveiled here. Uh, so all of this is part of the Russian playbook, but also the international playbook in terms of trying to find out uh, where the kind of chinks uh, in the debating armour might lie so that they could continue to talk, because the troop build-ups, of course, continue apace. Yeah, we shall see what outcome of this, uh, this meeting is. Sam, great to have you with us. Sam Kylie there from Kiev. OK, let's move on. Spotify superstar Joe Rogan has promised to be more balanced in future after getting into hot water with two music icons and probably more. Joni Mitchell and Neil Young had demanded their music be pulled from the streaming platform, citing misinformation on his podcast. Here's some of Rogan's statement. I am going to do my best in the future to uh, balance things out. I'm gonna do my best. But my point of doing this is always just to create interesting conversations and ones that I hope people enjoy. Spotify is also changing some of its policies after the spat. Brian Stelter joins you with the details. Brian, great to have you with us. There are so many different directions we can take this in, but just for viewers who may not be um, aware of what this is. This is Spotify's most uh, popular podcast in the United States and the UK. So he's got a big voice and has got a whopping gate contract too. Um, what do you make of his response to the criticism and also Spotify's? Well, well, certainly Spotify is doing something that the big other social networks did two years ago. 
adding content warnings or content advisories, adding a hub full of information about COVID-19. These are steps Facebook and Twitter took in March of 2020 and April of 2020. Now Spotify is trying to calm things down and appease artists by adding these features, but this is a very small step by Spotify. They're not wrestling with the reality, Julia, that they are not just a platform, they're a distributor because they pay Joe Rogan $100 million. They are his promoter, they are his distributor. And so whether artists are gonna think this is enough is a very open question. There may be some big artists, some more Neil Youngs out there who want a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? When I first saw this story break, I, I was thinking to myself, too lucrative to fail um, with his contract, with the size of his, his audience and wake me up when Taylor Swift gets upset about what he's saying. But, but actually, it comes back to this question, one of, uh, are you a distributor? Do you have the right and the need and the um, requirement to moderate content on your platform? And for Joe Rogan, he's not a journalist. Does he have to be balanced? It goes back to a lot of the debate that you have on your show and that we talk about in the media today. He's an opinion giver. He's not a journalist. Does he have to be more forceful about the content that he provides on his platform? He's got lots of and I agree with still you. Listen. He probably is too lucrative to fail. He is a very valuable asset for Spotify. But Daniel Eck, uh, Daniel Eck, the CEO, clearly felt enough pressure over the weekend to rush a statement out, to promise to take action, to try to calm down not just artists who might be offended, but also subscribers. We don't know how many subscribers Spotify might have lost over the weekend due to this controversy. Will it fade away in a few days? I think it probably will. Will Joe Rogan continue to book guests who promote vaccine disinformation? He probably will. His position is he's just asking questions. And as you said, he's not a journalist. He's much more of an entertainer. Um, The issue with Joe Rogan is that there are lots and lots and lots of people out there who do not trust the CNNs and they trust the Joe Rogans instead. And that's a trust problem that's much bigger than Spotify. And it's not fixable just by putting a label or a warning on something. If he left, would he take his audience with him, Brian? Is that the point? He could, although what we've seen with some examples of deplatforming is that some of these some of these people kind of fade away when they lose a yeah. big platform. So I think that's very much debatable. There's not really an example quite like this we can point to. Yeah, I mean, CNN Plus is hiring Brian, aren't they? They are. Don't answer that. that. (laughs) Ryan Stelter, thank you for joining us. It's all about the platform. Yes. Okay. Let me bring you up to speed to some of the other stories making headlines around the world. North Korea says it fired an intermediate range ballistic missile on Sunday to test the accuracy of its weapons. It marked the seventh launch of the new year and the most powerful since 2017. The US says it's concerned with the latest round of tests and is calling for talks. The United Emirates says it destroyed a ballistic missile launch platform in Yemen after intercepting a missile on Monday. Iran-backed Houthi rebels claimed responsibility for the attack. It's the third such incident this month. Israel's president has been in on the UAE on a historic two-day visit, but officials say he was in no danger. More First Move after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's been a January for the record books on global markets. Investors jolted by an inflating, fearing Fed. More companies warning of rising costs and ongoing supply chain woes too. And the year is just getting started. Rishi Sharma, the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, is out with his 10 big trends for 2022. He sees China's economic power peaking, the deflating of what he calls bublets in crypto 
SPACs, so special purpose acquisition companies, and U.S. tech firms that have yet to turn a profit. And despite virtual reality mania, he says the physical world remains more important than the metaverse. Rishi Sharma is also the author of 10 Rules of Successful Nations, and he joins us now. Among other books, Rishi, happy new year and great to have you with us. Um, I could keep you talking for the next hour on your top 10 trends, so I've had to narrow down (laughs) and choose my favorites. And one in particular was greenflation. We talk a lot about inflation, but what about greenflation, this voracious appetite for green technologies without enough consideration of the resources required to provide for them? Talk us through this. Yeah. Commodities, in fact, had their best year since 1973 uh, last year. And that's quite exceptional to get such a strong bounce in commodities. And the argument I make is that this was not so much demand-based. Yeah, some of it was demand-based, including the new demand coming for some of these commodities like copper, aluminium that are used uh, to build out a green infrastructure. But a lot of this is supply-based. Uh, that if you look at what's happening on the supply side, um, industries in the material sector, in the energy sector, the total cut in new capacity has been as much as 50% over the last five to six years. That's a very dramatic cut. And the point I make is that a lot of this has to do with the pressure that many companies are facing now in terms of not investing anymore uh, in these polluting projects. So of course, so that's the contradiction. On one hand, we all want to move to a greener environment and we're all concerned about climate change. On the other hand, we need these commodities still now, demand is at least stable, if not growing. And yet we are cutting capacity very aggressively for the first time in the energy sector in many decades. The amount of new uh, capex going in is less than the depreciation rates. Uh, So this is why we're seeing such a squeeze in prices higher across the commodity sectors. And that's why I call this greenflation. A dramatic underinvestment in traditional resources like gas and oil that we're still going to need for many years. And yet, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, and the guest gets criticism for talking their book, particularly if they're representative or in the oil and gas sector. Rishir, what you're talking about, though, is um, already, in a way, what we're seeing, an energy price, a commodity price crisis, which is going to be particularly penalising for importers of both. Yes, and it's hurting the consumer at the end of the day because it's the consumer that ends up paying these higher prices. So we need to find a solution here. We are all in favor. Uh, There's a pretty good consensus built out there that we need need to do something about climate change. But we need to find a solution there that how do we get to point A to point B without hurting the consumer and uh, hurting the global economy because you can't have oil prices go up at this pace or the price of other materials. It's uh, this commodity inflation hurts more people than it helps. And so it involves very quickly an acceleration in green energy investment, but also recognising the cost of that and perhaps increasing investment in traditional forms of energy too, at least in the short term. We need a game plan for the short to medium term. Yes, until we uh, uh, get to this point where the demand begins to naturally tail off or the other um, uh, alternative sources uh, of commodities really increase. So we need a game plan here. And as I said, to build some of the green infrastructure, we're still going to need copper and aluminium and some of those polluting um, metals for a long time to come. It's essential. 
Yeah, it ties to the next um, conversation point and one of your other 10 um, pointers, which is the everything bubble and the rush of liquidity that's gone into all sorts of assets. And this definite sound of bublets, as you call them, and I love that popping, whether it's crypto or clean energy to some degree, um, the SPACs, the special purpose acquisition vehicles. My question for you is, when do we go from bear market to crash even technical terms, and at the point where you're talking about a bubble popping to such an extent that actually it, it doesn't ever recover. Are we seeing some of that? Well, I think we're seeing some evidence of that uh, because what I did here, and in fact, I wrote a piece about this uh, last year, was that identifying that what are the areas of the markets that can be called a bubble using some of the classic signs of a bubble. And um, I identified about five bublets out there, a new term to basically identify pockets in the market rather than the overall market, pockets in the market where there are bubbly signs, too much trading going on, um, a parabolic increase in prices, too much retail speculative activity going on. So I came up with these bublets, even though there are some of these things which I've been bullish on for a while, like cryptocurrencies, uh, but I felt that this was a good idea that had gone too far. And the template that I came up with was that uh, after doubling in price at least over a 12-month time horizon, when these bublets begin to pop, the average price drop tends to be about 70% from the peak over a two-year time horizon. So they do an entire round trip. And I suspect that's what many of these bublets are currently underway. Now, these bublets have already popped by more than 50%. That Most of these bublets that I identified, whether it was these um, non-profitable tech stocks, some of the clean energy stocks, all those are already down 50% from their peak. So we still have some way to go, but um, a 70% drop from the peak is generally the template that bubbles and bublets have fallen uh, to once uh, they begin to pop. Yeah. And how long does it take to recover? Well, it takes a long time because it takes about uh, two years. But yeah, as I said about bubbles, that bubbles are often good ideas that have gone too far. So Some of these are good ideas. I think cryptocurrencies are here to stay. Uh, I don't think that they're going to disappear. But the price appreciation, the speculative mania that they saw, a bit like what happened with the NASDAQ, let's say, uh, in the year 2000, that, you know, you had this incredible bubble in the NASDAQ. Then it, like, popped. It took a while for that to recover. But it did come back. The NASDAQ hasn't disappeared. And it made a new (laughs) high last year that was more than three times higher than the peak of... uh, 2000. So they can remain for a while, but at least for a couple of years, these tend to be pretty badly wounded. And that's the template I would expect these bubblets to follow. Yeah. And to your point, look at the innovation that was created following that period, though, as well. So as you point out, great opportunities and businesses can be created through this. Um, Let's talk and have a meta moment. What do we think of the metaverse, Rishia? Because it feels like everybody's talking about it. Is the physical world in decline, the physical economy in decline? Yeah, that's the point I make, that it's not. And it, it yeah. links back to our uh, first point about greenflation, that, uh, that yeah, you know, we all want to talk about Metaverse. It's become very cool. It features increasingly in every company's uh, quarterly earnings call. But the physical world still matters uh, because uh, if you look at the millennials, they still want uh, a new home. In fact, uh, that demand is only increasing. They still want a new car uh, in many ways. And then you also have... Uh, Places like, uh, as I said, that in terms of commodities where you have so much underinvestment. And then if you look at what's happening to wages, 
Uh, Rushir, I'm going to have to cut you off there, actually, because we've got some breaking news out of the UK that I have to get to it. Come back and talk to us soon, please, because it was always fascinating to speak to you. Thank you. Breaking news coming into CNN. Details of the so-called Partygate report have been released. That's the long-awaited investigation into parties held in Downing Street during lockdown. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, what can you tell us? Well, at last, after nearly two months, we have what is a slimmed-down report. We knew we wouldn't get a full report, not least because the Met Police, as of last week, is investigating. So key details are missing. Now, sifting through this report, and I have to say I'm going to need to do some more reading to get you uh, the full answer there, but some of the highlights so far, uh, a quotation from Sue Gray's report saying, some of the behaviour surrounding these gatherings is difficult to justify, and there's a conclusion that a number of these gatherings should not have been allowed to take place or to develop in the way that they did. Now, a reminder, this report is not looking uh, at criminal investigations. It is not deciding who may have broken the law. It was determining what the facts were around the allegations of all of those parties in 2020 uh, and at the beginning of last year in relation to the COVID rules in place at the time. What people want to know, of course, is, is the Prime Minister culpable? Is he culpable? Was he at any of these events? And unfortunately, there is a, a part in, uh, in this report that says that due to the Met Police investigation, uh, Sue Gray says she is extremely limited in what she can say about those events. It's not possible at present to provide a meaningful report setting out and analysing the extensive factual information she has gathered. And that particularly concerns four uh, of the most sort of... Uh, I don't know, uh, the colourful parties that were alleged, of course, in those reports. That will be for the Met Police, and we do not have a timing as to when we will get a report from the Met Police and when a full publication of Sue Gray's report will be. We do expect the Prime Minister, though, to speak. That's in around an hour in Parliament and to address the findings of this report and to set out what happens next. Of course, there will still be huge pressure, not least from the opposition within Parliament for him to resign. But is there enough of a smoking gun here? Given it's a limited report, it is a slimmed down version. There may not be, but certainly there'll be pressure on him. Julia? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm just reading some of the top lines too, and I appreciate you've only just seen it too. So we're both sort of sight reading. Um, but some of the quotes in here are quite punchy, I think, and, and troublesome for, for Boris Johnson and the government. Quote, some of the behaviour surrounding these gatherings is difficult to justify. At least some of the gatherings in question represent a serious failure to observe not just the high standards expected of those working at the heart of government, but also the standards expected of the entire British population at the time, which, Anna, you and I have discussed, the challenge is not just what some of these MPs think and the criticisms that the government's face, but also what the public thinks of what happened, given the sacrifices they were making at the time. The conclusion, a number of these gatherings should not have been allowed to take place or to develop in the way that they did. Um, the question, and you've already raised it when, it, when Boris Johnson appears in what around an hour's time is, is sorry going to be enough? Saying sorry once again, and perhaps this shouldn't have happened, is that going to be enough? Because it's going to come down to questions as well of who went to what, and who was doing what, particularly in light of some of the, um, I'll call it, excuses that the Prime Minister's given already. Tough. The excuses, the half apologies, it certainly hasn't been enough at this stage to quell serious public anger. We've had a number of polls out over the last couple of months looking at support for Boris Johnson. Uh, they have consistently shown that the majority of the British public that have been polled would like to see him resign. They don't feel he is showing himself as having the traits needed to be a good leader here. Uh, the opposition party, the Labour Party, of course, would like him to resign. But ultimately, it will come down to what his own 
party think. That is how these leadership contests, if it were to come to that, would happen. And currently, we don't believe there are nearly enough MPs within his party ready to ask for a vote of confidence. So, But that could change. You know, that will change depending on what the full impact of this report is. And I think critically, what the prime minister says, how does he react now? And is it enough to quell that public anger? Yeah, you raise some great points. I'm just looking at some of the other quotes in this. The excessive consumption of alcohol is not appropriate in a professional workplace at any time. Steps must be taken to ensure that every government department has a clear and robust policy in place covering the consumption of alcohol in the workplace. Another one. There were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of Number 10 and the Cabinet Office at different times. And as I've mentioned already, some of these events should not have been allowed to take place. Other events should not have been allowed to develop as they did. Questions about alcohol consumption. I'm just, I'm mapping what we're reading here. And this, to your point, is a redacted version of actually what happened. We can't be so specific. But even just from these quotes, if I map that to what the British people were doing at the time, (laughs) it's tough reading. It's tough reading. And this is the slimmed down version, Julia. So just looking at some of those quotes and how punchy they are, you wonder what would be actually in the full report, particularly if we were looking at who was involved in which parties, when and how much rule breaking was done. But just the ultimate. You and I talk about corporate governance a lot, don't we? And if you look at number 10 Downing Street here, they are showing that there seems to be a culture, quite aside maybe from the prime minister, but a culture of drinking, a culture that needs to change. And that is something we've heard a lot lot about over the last few weeks, that there was a culture of drinking in the workplace. And during a time of a pandemic, when people made huge sacrifices, huge, not being able to see their loved ones in hospital as they died, not being able to get married, uh, being on their own, having to make sacrifices that clearly number 10 didn't. They made the rules, but they broke them. Yeah. Um, Another quote from this. Some of the behaviour surrounding these gatherings is difficult to justify. And that's the job now of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We've discussed he's got to come out and justify what happened here. Perhaps say it won't happen again. Um, Tough. Salma, I think you're with us now. Salma, your your views, because you've been reading through and scouring this report, too. Julia, I I hate to reference it this way, but it it almost sounds like a child being scolded. I can't remember who needs to be told that the excessive consumption of alcohol is not appropriate in the workplace. That's how this report reads. A serious failure of leadership, actions that are difficult to justify, a culture that needs to be addressed immediately. I mean, this is really damning, Julia. This shows that this Gray report, at least the conclusion she's drawing in what is, again, a slimmed down version, is that the culture behind me here is one that disrespected the highest office in the land, is one that turned its back on the sacrifices that the British public made, is one that simply does not hold to the high standard that you expect of government, particularly during a pandemic. I mean, even little bits of this report where they're describing the use of the prime minister's own office and garden as a place where people gathered without justification, gathered excessively, excessive alcohol consumption, again, assumed. You just wonder how seriously leadership was being taken during the course of the last two years when, again, over this 20-month period that's outlined in this report, multiple parties taking place. We are talking garden, parties and Christmas parties and all sorts of parties where plenty of alcohol was being drunk at a time when everybody else was locked down, when serious decisions needed to be made, Julia. Now, the Prime Minister is going to be in Parliament in just a short time to give his statement, to give his take, and I am really curious as to how he can justify what is quite literally unjustifiable, according to this report, Julia. 
Yeah, some of it at the very least. And obviously a lot of this is missing due to the Metropolitan Police Report, Anna. And, and as you and I have discussed, and I'm just looking through the quote on, on what was said about this, unfortunately this necessarily means that I'm extremely limited in what I could say about those events. And it's not possible at present to provide a meaningful report setting out and analysing the extensive factual information I've been able to gather. Is that in some way helpful, do we think, to the Prime Minister at this moment. There is, there, there is a lack of detail over who was at what, where, how and consuming what. Well, you wonder that given that sort of teasers ahead to, to more bombshells, it probably doesn't really help the Prime Minister at all. It'll be interesting to see whether or not he says what he says a lot, which is that we have to wait for the full report, we have to wait for the Met Police, whether he just tries to kick this can down the road. I don't think that will necessarily work. Uh, I have been reading through a bit more. Um, it's interesting what Sue Gray's report says about Downing Street and the way that it is run. She talks about how it has sort of increased and expanded in recent years. She says the leadership structures are fragmented and complicated. And this has sometimes led to the blurring of lines of accountability, which I think is very interesting. And it's all about accountability. And that's what people want to see. Yes, we don't have all the details at this stage, but we certainly want to see what the prime minister does. Does he apologize? Does he take on the responsibility for how his government and his number 10 Downing Street has been run? Yeah. Against the backdrop of the pandemic, when the government was asking citizens to accept far-reaching restrictions on their lives, some of the behaviour surrounding these gatherings is difficult to justify. Uh, Salma, you get the last word, because I think you, perhaps most of all, have been um, testing British public opinion over what happened here. What do you think when they see the details of this report in full and have had time to read it? They'll conclude. Julia, I think that most of the British public is in no doubt as to what happened here because it is no longer as to whether or not the Prime Minister and his government violated COVID rules. I think most people, if you stop them on the street, believe that that is exactly what happened. But it's the details about the type of government that is running this country. Again, one that is being accused of not holding high standards, of not respecting the British public, of excessively consuming alcohol under the prime minister's roof. It is going to be very difficult for this country to look at that observation of this government, those adjectives and descriptions of their leadership, of the people who were setting the rules, of a time of pandemic when, again, you have to remember the UK had one of the worst mortality rates in the world. And people and families might start to question whether or not their loved ones' lives could have been saved, whether this last period could have been easier, whether there could have been less sacrifices made, less loss for families across this country. And that is going to be an extremely difficult pill to swallow. And how will the British public react? They're going to react by putting pressure on their MPs. They're going to react by ringing up their lawmakers, sending in letters, pushing and doing what they can to get this prime minister out out of office. The latest snap polling shows two-thirds of adults in this country do not want Prime Minister Boris Johnson to continue his premiership. And that's what you're going to see happen. You're going to see the public push their MPs, push for that to take place. Julia? Yeah, you raise a fascinating point because this was a bunch of people also under a great deal of pressure and also struggling and had their own personal lives and their own personal issues. But I think the point that you raise there and you do it incredibly eloquently is perhaps had there been a little bit more focus, there may have been a little less loss. And that's the challenge here. Salma Abdelaziz, Anna Stewart, ladies, thank you. We're back after this. 
Welcome back to First Move, where the report into the goings throughout the uh, COVID pandemic period at Number 10 Downing Street is out. I'll read you one of the quotes to begin. There were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of Number 10 and the Cabinet Office at different times. Some of the events should not have been allowed to take place. Other events should not have been allowed to develop as they did. Just one of the quotes from this report. Redacted, but still enough, I think. Quentin Peel is Associate Fellow at the Europe Programme at Chatham House and a Financial Times commentator. Quentin, we don't have all the report, we just have pieces of it, but there's some pretty punchy lines in this that are going to spell trouble, I think, for Boris Johnson. Your view? Yes, I think it's, it looks thoroughly uncomfortable. It's mm. certainly not the whole works. It doesn't pin anything down and it's not going to specifically say he lied to parliament or he broke the law. But these criticisms of the failure of leadership and the culture, the chaotic culture of leadership in Downing Street, even if in this very brief version, they're very clear. I mean, one of the quotes I pulled out and I was talking on the show earlier, the excessive consumption of alcohol is not appropriate in a professional workplace at any time. Um, I made the comment that perhaps a little more focus in the public's eye may may mean uh, a little less loss. And it's a tough conclusion to make, but it won't stop the British public looking at some of these quotes from this report and, and wondering, I think. Yes, I think the absolutely key meeting today is not when Johnson stands up in Mm. Parliament to apologise again or whatever he's going to do. It's going to be the meeting with his Conservative backbenchers because they are really worried that he is now going to be a busted flush, that he's not going to be the election winner they thought they'd voted into office. Failures of leadership. They'll also the Conservatives be poring over the latest polls and they are eye-watering, I think, for Boris Johnson and confidence that the British public feel in this leader now. What do you think they say to him? Well, I think they say either you change your style or we're going to have to change your job. And he is not the sort of person who's willing to change his style. Now, I've no doubt that he's going to try and bluster this out, that the situation, the waters have been so muddied about what are we going to hear now, what are the police going to do, and what action is going to be taken, that he will try and bluster this out. But having said that, I think he's still in a very difficult position. What does bluster it out mean in practice, Quentin? He's going to come out today and say, I'm sorry, once again, because to your first point, and it's a very valid one, there's no smoking gun in this. There's no he said, she said, this is precisely what happened. It's just a, hey, you acted inappropriately in a very difficult situation. Yes, but that is why the key is whether he's lost the trust and confidence of his own party. And that, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, the opposition will carry on demanding that he resign. In a curious way, that may reinforce the desire of the Conservatives to hang on to him. But that's a very difficult position. If he is damaged goods, if they now do very badly in the local elections in May, that really will be the writing on the wall, I think. More important than the Met Police report that comes out? Yes, I think so. In a curious way, the Met Police report, I mean, this is a sort of slapping people on the wrist. Mm. It's like issuing parking contraventions. But I think the key question at the heart of all this is, do we trust the Prime Minister? And he's done an awful lot, really, to break that trust. 
you know, when the going gets tough, what do you do? You get a flight to Ukraine or to a hot spot <laughs> in the world, which is what the, uh, the prime minister is apparently going to do tomorrow, I believe. Um, there's a lot going on in the world uh, where leadership is required. Absolutely. I don't think that anybody in Ukraine or in Moscow is particularly going to be listening to Boris Johnson. That's part of his problem. He, he, he really has damaged his reputation, not just in Britain, but outside Britain as well. Yes, there are critical things to be tackled, but he no longer looks like the man to tackle them. You know, it's interesting that you need 15 percent and you can educate me more on this of, of members to say, look, we want a confidence vote. But at that point, then you need a majority. And there's a huge difference between 15 percent of the party saying, look, we want to hold a confidence vote on this and 51 percent saying, OK, it's time to remove him. What does it take to get to that point for a collective decision that actually, whether it's on the international stage or domestically, that trust, as you've pointed out, that crucial trust is gone? It requires two things, I think. One, the public reaction both to the report to, and to Johnson's response to it. And if there is a really uh, another lurch in the polls or something, they're going to worry very much. Um, and I think that uh, it, it, that's the, at the heart of it, it's therefore not the smoking gun that is really going to pin this mm. down. It's the mood of the country and the party. And uh, if he can say, I hear what you say to Sue Gray, to this report, and I will change. But if he tries to just blame other people and sack a few senior civil servants, I don't think that's going to revive his reputation. I feel if anyone can survive this, though, Boris Johnson can. Um, and it goes back again to your first point about a change in style. How might he evolve even temporarily as a result of this? It's very difficult to say because this a man is a man who has survived for years on being sort of funny and persuasive mm. and, oh, come on, joshing people along and saying, I can get away with it. That is not the change of style that's needed. One of his fundamental problems, I think, is that he has actually had very poor personnel choices. He, right from the moment that he appointed Dominic Cummings as mm. his chief of staff, uh, the man who now is hell-bent on destroying him. So he's got a very bad reputation for the people he's chosen. And he doesn't do his homework and he doesn't really sound serious in a very serious situation. He still seems to laugh and you watch his eyes as he responds to questions and they're darting around trying not to look in the camera. Yeah. And this is just too serious to... Uh use a charm offensive to try and get out of. Um, to your yeah. point, I think, the justification, the Sue Gray report, difficult to justify. Some of this behaviour is difficult to justify. The Prime Minister's going to try and do it in 43 minutes, I believe. Quentin, we will both be watching. Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House. So thank you so much for your time. Thank You're you. watching First Move. More to come.
Welcome back to First Move, where we continue to follow the latest on the Sue Gray report, the independent report into activities, events at Number 10 Downing Street and beyond during the COVID lockdowns. I have another quote for you here. At times, it seems there was too little thought given to what was happening across the country. There were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of Number 10 and the Cabinet Office at different times. Anna Stewart is in London for us on this. Anna, and I know you've been reading more of this report since we last spoke to you, but that quote, like others, tough reading for Boris Johnson and his government. The question is how tough? Yeah, I finally got through the full report and I can tell you it's actually way more critical than any of us uh, possibly thought it would be, even though it is a slimmed down report, even though uh, it lacks the detail that many would have hoped, not least because Met Police are investigating at the same time. But the ultimate conclusion here is that there are issues at number 10. There are issues with the leadership that some of these events should never have happened. And actually, I think one of the key quotes uh, in all of this was, there were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of Number 10 and the Cabinet Office at different times. Some of the events should not have been allowed to take place. Other events should not have been allowed to develop as they did. And it concludes by saying that while, of course, Met Police report is ongoing, the time to make changes is now. So, you know, Number 10 Downing Street must act on this report. And of course, there will be more detail when the full report is published. Hopefully, of course, we all get to see that as well. Julia? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm just looking at further details again. Um, Sue Gray revealing that only four of the 16 gatherings initially referred for investigation is not reaching the threshold for investigation by London's Met Police, which is severely limited her in what she can say surrounding those events. So just to get a more sense here of quite how much has been redacted in this report, which is also quite critical for what details we get in future and what we hear from the Met. But in the interim, Anna, we are going to hear from Boris Johnson in around, what, 38 minutes and counting. And then he's going to be up in front of his Conservative Party members later, who I'm sure are going to have some choice words for him too. How does he survive this? I'm sure they are going to have some choice words for him. But hey, we've been here before. This report has been nearly two months in the works. Boris Johnson has been asked about all these allegations multiple times. There have been some, I'd say, half apologies for some of the allegations. There have been many, many denials, of course. And I suspect there's a, an option here for the prime minister to say he doesn't want to talk much about it, given uh, it is not a full report. And there are some details, as you say, that are missing. And a Met Police investigation is ongoing. That is not what the public is going to want to hear, uh, not least given all the latest polls we've had. They've been fairly consistent with around two thirds of people polls saying that Boris Johnson should resign. A new one by Ipsos Mori out today saying two thirds of, of Brits that were polled don't believe he's got the right traits to be a leader, to be prime minister. But ultimately, while there will be that pressure from the public, what really matters, at least in the coming days and weeks, is what his party thinks. What do the Conservative MPs think? Because they are the ones that have the power to trigger a leadership vote. And up to this stage, it hasn't looked like that threshold has been reached. Julia? Yeah, and there's huge questions in there as well, Sam. You can come in here because in order to replace a prime minister or tell him that you've got no confidence in him, you have to have an alternative as someone who can who can take over, which is one question. And I think there's also a suggestion perhaps that the media has been quite hysterical about this. And are we really understanding public opinion? Sam, what can he come out and say to perhaps soothe some of the public's concerns? I don't know, Julie. I'm honestly asking myself that question because right now this is a prime minister that has to justify 
the unjustifiable, defend the indefensible, if you will, because this is a 12-page report that essentially scolds this government like children, says that excessive drinking of alcohol at the workplace is not appropriate, that they don't hold themselves to the high standards that the British public observe, that the behavior of these officials was not justifiable. So you can only imagine that anything the Prime Minister says within the context of those very stern words might fall on deaf ears. I think his saving grace here, Julia, is again that this is a slimmed down version, only a 12-page report. It does not name uh, any specific details, who was involved, the when, the where, the who of the matter, and those details of breaking down each of those events that are outlined in that report, a dozen reports, and it doesn't incriminate the Prime Minister directly, because remember, all of that now is the subject of a police probe. Police have asked that minimal references be made to those most serious potential flagrant violations because those might be criminal offenses, Julia. So, yes, the prime minister might be able to buy himself another day due to the lack of detail here. But I just don't understand how you justify a government that behaves this way, a government that, again, according to this report, disrespected the sacrifice of the British public, did not take the office of leadership seriously and did not take the job of running a country during a pandemic. Seriously, how can the Prime Minister twist that, Julia? We shall see in 30, no, for the yes, 34 minutes time. Um, yeah, tough reading, tough speaking. I think when we hear from Boris Johnson, the question is, in the conversation I was just having, do we see a style change and some remorse from this Prime Minister? We'll see. Anna Stewart, Summer of Delazis. Great work, guys. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, They'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe and connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.